We are looking in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, as we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. And I never like to come to a sermon and not finish the sermon I had prepared, but I thought I would spare you of an hour and 15-minute sermon last Sunday, wrapping it up for you after the second point. And so we are picking up where we left off in Ephesians chapter 2. And we read last week verses 11 through 22. And we really left off somewhere around verse 18. So we're going to look in a a focused way at verses 18 through 22, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. But let's, for the sake of context, go back and begin in verse 11 again. Uh, I noted last Sunday that the Apostle Paul is coming back to those he's already told about the unique privileges that they have in Christ, what Christ has done for them, and all that they already have in him, even though they were dead in sins and trespasses, even though they, they couldn't do anything for themselves, even though they were under the power of the evil one and deserving of his wrath, God in his mercy raised them up in Christ. And, and then he goes back and he tells them, Again, now, in verses 11 and following, first, what they were, what, what their circumstances were, what their, what their position was here in this world, what their spiritual context was, as it were, that they were, they were outside of the covenant community. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. They were without hope. They were without God. And I noted last week that Paul is doing that because until we remember what we were, we will never appreciate what God has done for us merely by his grace in Christ. So if I want a greater appreciation of who Christ is and what he's done for me, I have to have a greater understanding of what I was. Um, It never helps me to downplay what I was because the more I... The more I turn a blind eye to what I was, I will never fully see how great God's grace and mercy is in Jesus. And so picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, I want us to look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. There Paul now says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, 
For through him he bo- we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that is very evident in our day, in our time, in this country, is how many misplaced notions there are about what the church is and what the church is supposed to be. Um, I, have, I have been aware of this recently as we have been um, uh, looking at applicants for uh, the position of assistant pastor in this church, and in the very short conversations I've had with any number of men, you quickly see what people are honed in on. Well, what's the music like in your church? How do people dress in your church? And, and I, I want to sort of stop individuals at that point and say, what is the church and what is a right understanding of what the church is to be and what are we to value most about the church? Um, I'm not sure if it's because we live in such a, commu- a consumeristic Society, I think that is a, a big part of it, or because people are so dogmatic about any number of things that really ultimately do not matter. What style of music you do, how you dress, none of those things are in the Bible. None of them. But what is in Scripture when we come to the doctrine of the church is the really great things, the really big things, the really important things. And it's very interesting as we come to Ephesians 2 and this section that we're looking at, Paul is moving, and you wouldn't see this, you wouldn't see this on a cursory reading, but he is moving from what he has said in chapter 1 about our salvation as individuals, what he has said in chapter 2 further about your salvation as an individual, to to what we were collectively by nature, to what we are now as the church. Paul has seamlessly moved from individual salvation to the doctrine of the church. It's, it's remarkable. Um, I had a neighbor once tell me, you know, I don't need to go to church. I can pray to God on my motorcycle. Well, yes, you can pray to God on your motorcycle, let me, let me not take that away from you, but you do need to be gathered together with his people. Even the idea of going to church carries so much baggage in our society, in our understanding. This building is not the church, and, and it's okay that we, we call it the sanctuary, but it's not the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. That's what Paul's saying. Not you as an individual. Believers gathered together in Christ as one new man. Remember, we saw, we saw last week that what Paul is pressing in here in this section is that God has taken Jews 
And God has taken Gentiles, the greatest division the world has ever seen. And out of that great division, through the death of Jesus on the cross, he has made of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. And, and I didn't note this last week, but that one new man is not just you as an individual, as a new creature, it is a new Israel. Isn't that amazing? He's made one new man. Someone asked me after the service, who is this new man? I must have failed as a preacher, y'all, so here we go. Who is this new man? It is the new Israel of God. It is the true Israel of God, believing Jews, believing Gentiles in union with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, at one time, you who were Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no right to the privileges that God gave Israel in the old covenant. You, you, you were cut off from the covenant people. You, you had no hope of salvation. You, you, you didn't understand the covenant promises that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. If, if you belong to the nations of the world, by and large, I know there's Nebuchadnezzar, I know there's Nineveh, I know there were exceptions, but by and large, there was no hope. Paul says you were without hope, you were without Christ, you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ, by faith in Christ, God has made of the two one new man. There is no more national ethnic Israel. Let me tell you this morning, there is no such thing as theocratic Israel anymore. The Zionist movement, that is a state. They are not God's special people. I am not anti-Semitic. Hear me clearly. This passage says there is one new man. I didn't say that. Paul said that. There's one new man of the two. God has made peace. He is reconciled together in one body through the cross. I'm going to argue this morning that he's the true Israel. That's what makes all of this work. Jesus is the true Israel of God. And he has given us three things we're going to see this morning. He has given us a place, a new spiritual place. He has made us a new spiritual people. And he has given us a new spiritual presence. A new spiritual place, a new spiritual people, and a new spiritual presence. Now, I want us to focus on those three things as we consider verses 18 through 22. Notice Verse 18, for through him, that is through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but here what he's saying is there has only ever been one way of salvation. How are Jews saved? By faith in Christ. How are Gentiles saved? By faith in Christ. Does God have two different people, two different plans of salvation? No. How do I know this? Because Jesus says in John 8, 58, your father Abraham, he said to the Jews, your father Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus' day. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham esteemed the reproach, or I'm sorry, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. Moses, Hebrews 11:25 through 26, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. 
It's only ever been one way of salvation. It has only ever been through the free promise of God that Christ would come, atone for the sins of his people, and rescue them. Now that's important because if, if it was a different way, we would have no hope. But now the apostle says, through Christ we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And then he says this, notice this. God has given us a new spiritual place. Notice this, for through him you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Um, what, what, what Paul is essentially saying is th- that if you were a Gentile at this time and, and before this, before Christ came, you, you were without a homeland. You had no country, you had no spiritual homeland. You, you were wandering in the far country, lost. Um, God had created for himself a covenant people, and he had brought them into a land for a time where he would give them promises and his worship and a temple and sacrifices, all pointing to Christ. And, and all because of his grace. They didn't deserve it. He said, it's not because you were better than other people. It's not because you were more numerous. In fact, it's because you were less, but because I loved you, because I, I set my covenantal mercy and love on you, and I, I sought to nurture you in that place. And, and everyone outside didn't have a place. Um, now, the Jews in the Old Covenant would take that self-righteously and think they were better, and they would call the Gentiles dogs, and they, they would despise them. They misunderstood that it was all of grace. But, but the Gentiles had no place. They had no homeland. And now there is a new spiritual place. Um, it, is, it is a new Israel. Somebody said to me, where do you see a new Israel in the New Testament? Right here. Right here. You are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Now, Jesus had predicted this would happen, and if you'll remember the parable of the vineyard, Matthew 21, very end of Matthew 21, Jesus gives this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes, the rulers of Israel, and and, and he, he speaks about God having a vineyard, and he's drawing off of Isaiah chapter 5, my beloved has a vineyard, and, and that vineyard was Israel. And, and remember Isaiah, the Lord says, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I could have done? And when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And Jesus picks up on that. And in Matthew 21, he tells the wicked, ruthless, self-righteous religious leaders in Israel in his day that there was a vineyard and that God determined to send laborers into that vineyard. And those laborers were the Old Testament prophets, and he would send them laborers, and they would kill them. And he would send them more laborers, and they would kill them. This is what Israel did uh, as God sent them, prophets. And, and then finally, remember Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard said, I'm going to send my son. And Christ is speaking about himself. They'll listen to my son, and he sends his son, and they kill him. And then remember, Jesus says, but the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He would rise. He would become the chief cornerstone. And then Jesus said this, listen, Matthew 21, 43, I tell you, 
He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Literally, the kingdom will be taken from this nation and given to a nation bearing the fruit. What nation is that? It's the church. It's the new covenant church. It's the new Israel. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. A fruitful vineyard. That's, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, God is making you part of his kingdom. Imagine that privilege, y'all. You are members of the kingdom of God. You know, there is no other country I want to live in than this country. But the privilege of being a, a citizen of the United States of America is dross compared to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. John Piper once said, 10,000 years after America is a footnote, footnote in history, Christ will be king. Don't make an idol out of America. That's a bad idol. You know, I was reminded of the problems of America. There was an awesome picture that a bunch of golf agencies posted yesterday of some guy with his belly hanging out behind a pro golfer. It was floating around on social media, and he had a USA hat on. And all the comments of everybody outside of this country was like, that's America. <laughs> listen, listen, this is not it. This is not it. There have been people that treated America like the new Israel. This is not it. You belong to the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest privilege God has ever given anybody. He has, when he redeemed you through Christ, he, he ushered you into his kingdom. He made you a citizen. In fact, when Paul addresses, turn back to the opening verses. Notice the, the opening verses of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, they, they were citizens of Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What is greater than being a citizen of Ephesus or America? It's being united to Jesus and a member of his kingdom. God has given us a place. God has given us a place. I remember as a new believer just being astonished when I read those verses. He has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. If you're not astonished by that, it's either that you're not regenerate or you've grown dull. If that doesn't astonish you, there's something horribly wrong. You know, sometimes I think, why was I born in this country? I could have been born in North Korea or Iran. And, and we often talk about that. Why don't, why don't we talk about the fact, why, why would God bring us into his kingdom? That's far more astonishing than being a citizen of America. Far more astonishing. He has given us a place. He has made us one new man. He has, he has planted us in Christ and made us fellow citizens with the saints. And then notice Paul uses a second illustration. He not only talks about a place or a kingdom, he talks about us being a new spiritual people. Notice this. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is, what is a greater privilege than being a citizen of the kingdom of God? It is being a member of the very family of God. 
you, you almost get that Paul is trying to find illustrations to, to supersede each one that he gives us. We're in his kingdom, but we're also in his house. You're members of the household of God. Now, listen to this. James Boyce put it this way. Wonderful as the relationship between a citizen and a beneficent state may be, it is still a distant or formal relationship. Family ties are more intimate, the bonds tighter. To become a member of a family, you must be born into it or adopted into it. The Bible uses both terms to describe what it means to be a Christian, that we were far off, we were without hope. God didn't just bring us within the bounds of his kingdom. He put us in his very house and made us children of God. The Apostle John says that, that even now we are children of God. What we shall be, we don't yet know, but we now are the very children of God. We were guilty. We were deserving of his wrath and judgment. Uh, One of my professors in seminary said in justification, he takes us from the law court, and in adoption, he brings us into his living room. You go as a guilty criminal into the very living room of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. How could he make me as wicked as I have been and am by nature? How can he make me a very son or make you a very daughter of God? It's all by grace. It's all in Christ. Um, This has massive implications about how we view the church. When people say, you know, I don't need to go to church, they're saying, I don't care about these people. They're not my family. Look, every family has a crazy uncle. I know. I say it reverently, I have, a, I have a crazy uncle. I pray for him, I love him. Every family has a crazy uncle, sometimes two or three. Every family has really annoying siblings. And I know everyone thinks it's their brother or sister, but it's probably them. <laughs> and, and as I prepared for this, I thought about, you know, I don't cast my family off, and they don't cast me off because they see all the blemishes, but how quick people are to cast off the members of a local church when they don't like one or two little things, because they're just ornery or prickly people. Because they, and, and really, it becomes, doesn't it, when we forget this, it becomes about me rather about serving them. It becomes about what I want. You know, all those misplaced notions about what people are looking for in churches, 99% of them are just consumeristic, and it's about what I want. Listen to this, though. This is beautiful. Edward Donnelly, he was a great Irish pastor of the 20th century. He says this, the church is the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. The church is the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not our church. It is his church. We are not free to organize it as we please. It is his church. Jesus says, it is mine. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Donnelly says, that makes it precious. How can we say that the church is precious when we see all the bumps and flaws starting with our own? Because it's Christ's church. And that's what makes it precious. Donnelly says it becomes even more precious when we realize how he made it his with his own blood. 
We should remember that when we are tempted to criticize the church, he purchased it with his own blood. We should remember that when we are tempted to take the church for granted. We should remember that when we are tempted to neglect our obligation to the church, just like we would to our own families. You know, there is nothing that is more unfitting in this world than when a man or woman abandons his or her family. It's almost unconscionable that a man or a woman could abandon the family that God gave he or she. And yet people do it all the time because they've forgotten that they are members of the family of God in the church, that we are bound to one another, that that is the most important thing. And it's all by adoption. We've all been adopted in, in Christ. Now, Paul is going to give us one more illustration, and that's of a building. He's told us about a land, a family, and now a building, a place, a people, and presence. And, and here he's going to use the illustration of the temple from the Old Covenant. And you, you all know that that was God's special place of dwelling, that when Israel was established in the land and, and after David, God would allow Solomon to build that temple, and that would be the very dwelling place of God, that, that he would take up residence among his people, that he would call it his house. It was the Father's house. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was so important. We heard this morning about Eli dying when he heard about the Ark being captured because that was the place where God's glory dwelt. Of all the places on earth, God said, I am going to dwell here in this place behind the veil, over the Ark, between the cherubim, over the mercy seat where the blood went. And whenever God was there, he was with his people on earth. And you'll remember that before Jesus went to the cross, he predicted the destruction of the temple. He said not one stone was going to be standing upon another that was not cast down. And my best friend likes to say when Jesus left the room, he burned the house down. That's how much God cares about buildings, y'all. He burned it down. He said, not one stone's going to be left standing upon another because he had a better plan, a better temple, a better building. And it's you. You're the stones. Peter says, we are living stones, living stones built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. That whenever God redeems a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, he, he turns that, that one into a, a carefully chosen stone that he is hewning to be part of a new temple where he is going to dwell with his people. Um, I wonder if you think about yourself and those around you in those, those terms, that, that you are a living stone in the temple of God positioned right next to other living stones. And, and God has said, of all the places I am going to dwell on earth, it is in my people, in my church. What, what sort of church, what sort of church ought we to look for? You know, by the way, if you just want, I, I want community groups. I love community groups. They're not in the Bible anywhere. If you, if you want to just hang out with 20 of your best friends, that's great. 
But the church is not me and 20 of my best friends. The church is those that Jesus has redeemed with his blood and pulled together to be a worshiping community where he is dwelling in us. Where, where does God dwell? In the church. That's why what we do on the Lord's Day is so important. When people prioritize every other thing but not Lord's Day worship, there's something horribly wrong because this is it. I know you can't see it. I know you don't feel energized and, and on cloud nine every worship service, but this is it. God has said, I will be among them. I will dwell in them. Notice what Paul says. He says, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, wherever the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, wherever Christ is exalted, that is the foundation of the church. I don't want to be anywhere else. That is the zenith of what God has done through the shed blood of Jesus. If I don't care supremely about this, I don't care supremely about the blood of Christ. You see, I need the blood of Christ to cleanse my conscience from dead works, to forgive my sins, but I need the blood of Christ as a, as a sign over all the people that I see. He shed that blood to build a new temple in which God is dwelling by his Spirit. Listen to this, John Calvin says, Christ is the foundation on which the church is built by the preaching of doctrine. By the way, it, people that are like, well, we don't need too much doctrine. I've heard that a lot. Just shut them down immediately. Because this passage says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It is merely, there was no musical style, y'all. Traditional, contemporary, that's not the thing. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. It's sound doctrine about Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. Is Christ being proclaimed? Is his atonement being heralded? Is he being held up in his glory? That's the foundation. He is the foundation. Calvin says the church is built by the preaching of doctrine. On this account, the prophets and apostles are called builders. When I planted the church I planted almost 15 years ago from scratch, I had a man come into the daycare we were in, and we had about 20 people, and he came from a big, happy, clappy church. I will use that term. And, and there are good, happy, clappy churches, but, but he, he said to me, he said, if you don't have a rockin' praise band, your church is going to die in the pulpit. I remember how angry I was, because Scripture says that it is going to be born through the ministry of the Word. That's what Paul's saying. This is it. Listen to this. Calvin says nothing else, Paul tells us, was ever intended by the prophets and apostles than to found a church on Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. Oh man, I wish I could just beat this into my own head and into everyone else's head. That's it. That's it. He is sufficient. He is a sufficient foundation. By the way, foundations are very hard to lay. When I was about 24, making 9.24 an hour and trying to marry my very wonderful wife, um, I did construction. It was awful, y'all. It was awful. And one day, we were in Boiling Springs, South Carolina, up by Spartanburg. And my boss said, all right, you got to lay this foundation today. And he gave me a metal rake, and he said the the cement mixer's coming here soon, and, and when it starts pouring that out, you better rake hard and fast. And I was, I was over there like, I love Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus. <laughs> and it was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life 
It was the single hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I, I realized at that moment, it's very difficult to lay a solid foundation. Think about what the Lord Jesus did to become that foundation for us. He did all the hard labor for his church. He poured out his soul unto death to become the foundation of the church. He did everything necessary for that church to be built on him so that when you're being built up on him and God is indwelling us as a temple, it's because of what he has done. Not because of what I do or you do or anyone else does. Not because of uh, our our devising, our schemes, our plans, our, our marketing, anything else. It's Christ and Christ alone. Um, now, let me say this this morning. God's house is never finished until Christ comes again. And this is good news because if you look at me and if I look at you, you can see all the blemishes and you can see the, you can see the scaffolding. Remember when I lived in Philadelphia, I would see scaffolding over these great beautiful historic buildings and, and think, what, what is it going to look like inside? That's, that's all we see right now is the scaffolding. That's all I see on you and all you see on me is scaffolding until Christ comes again. Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that, that you know, that day is going to test everything by fire. You know, that church that you think looks so much better than the small-ish biblical church you grew up in may just be wood, hay, and stubble. That's what Paul says. That small church may be wood, hay, and stubble. And a bigger church may be built with gold, silver, and precious stones, but it's all just scaffolding. And we are just very unfinished products, which means we've got to be very patient with one another as we understand that we belong together. Listen to this. The last quote, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this great illustration He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing. We're all like leaky roof people. Come on. Leaky roofs. We knew that had to be fixed. Lewis says, you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The expectation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now that's, that's a word for us this morning. Whatever your conceptions and or misconceptions about the church, this is the greatest picture that the Lord could give us about what his church is. It's his church. It belongs to him. And he has given us a place in it He has made us his people in it, and he is vouchsafing his presence among us. And you may not be able to see all these things every moment when you look at it, but it doesn't make them any less true. It doesn't make them any less true. God is doing this, and he's doing it so that he can come and dwell in his people. Um.
There may be a lot of things that we value and long for in a local church, but there's nothing that is more important or that can any way supplant this because Christ has done this. He hasn't just made it possible. He has done it. He has done it. If you're in him by faith, this is true of you. Your place, your people, and his presence are secured through the blood of Jesus. Now, let me say this as we close. I love playing golf. I'm terrible at it. I love being on a boat, unless it gets too choppy. I love doing all kinds of stuff. But I should love nothing more than being gathered with God's people on the Lord's Day to be his place, his people, and to know his presence. There should be nothing I long to do more than that. There should be nothing you long to do more than that. If, if you're there like, I just want to get out of here, there's something wrong. I need this to wash over me. And then how it changes the way we look at one another. Crazy uncles, arguing children, it changes the way we deal with each other. And the place and the people and the presence of God shape our lives in such a way that we realize this is the only truly successful thing in this universe and the only thing that will last. Because after these walls fall down, and after our lives are over, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the only successful organization on earth, and it's the only thing that will last. And so we ought to cherish it, pray for it, love it, find our place in it, commit ourselves to it, and give all that we have for it. What a privilege the Lord has given us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I acknowledge and we acknowledge that our views of your church are woefully inadequate. We acknowledge that our views of this local congregation are woefully uh, unacceptable, that we have had too low a view of the privilege of having a place and being a people and knowing your presence and So, Lord, would you please make us to be astonished afresh at what you have done for us, that you have made us citizens with your saints, that you have made us members of your household, and that you are building us on the foundation of Christ so that we might be a dwelling place for you by the Spirit. Lord, would you indwell us that we would know these things to be true? Would you change us? Would you give us patience with one another, and would you give us the grace to pour out our lives in service for the good of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.